You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Today I'm speaking about marine ecology with Andrew Christie, who's a lecturer for the Bachelor of Agriculture and Technology degree at Melbourne Polytechnic, is president for the Landcare Group Marine Care Point Cook, and is also one of the hosts for the Out of the Blue radio program on 3CR Community Radio. G'day, Andrew. Welcome to the show. G'day, Daniel. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure to have you on. So, what is marine ecology? Well, basically, marine ecology, I think the best way to think of it is, uh, if I can use an analogy, um, think of all uh, think of a complex machine where you've got a whole bunch of different cogs and different wheels that are turning at different rates they're different sizes and they're all somehow interrelated so when we talk about the the topic of marine ecology um of course we're talking about what goes on in the marine environment under the surface of the water and you might be considering a whole bunch of different environments it might be the intertidal zone it might be subtidal uh might be deeper sort of uh oceanic waters that considers all of those environments and, you know, you'll have relations between, for example, algae and, um, you know, marine macrophytes, marine plants, whether they be seaweeds or what. And then, of course, the animals that depend on them for food and shelter and all these sorts of things. Uh, I will give a quick shout out. Um, unfortunately, uh, Australia lost one of its great marine ecologists um, only last week. My honours year supervisor, Dr. Peter, uh, I think associate or, or Professor Peter Fairweather, um, who uh, I was lucky enough to be his honours student uh, way back when. I was doing a degree at uh, Deakin University in Warrnambool. Um, so, uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, Peter died um, last week, so he'll be very, very sorely missed. That's very sad. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. No worries. Yeah, so um, when you when you talk about marine ecology, uh, it's basically those interrelationships between various elements of the chain. And uh, right now at um, Marine Care Point Cook and uh, more broadly throughout northern Port Phillip Bay, we've got a couple of really interesting situations uh, in regards to marine uh, marine ecology and the marine environment. So they they're. Um, Introduced marine pest species are a major one. So we've got a thing called Undaria pinnatifida, which is a uh, Japanese, uh, commonly known as wakami or the Japanese kelp. And then there's also um, another one called Gratilupia turuturu. That's the um, Japanese slippery weed. So these are both um, items that have been introduced to our local biota um, from uh, the northern Pacific uh, region, so around Japan and, and Korea and these sorts of areas. And they've shown up here and there exerting quite the impact in uh, different zones of the, uh, the marine environment. And then we've also got uh, a real problem at the moment with sea urchins. And the sea urchins are basically going through and they're overgrazing because their numbers have absolutely skyrocketed. Now, there's a few theories around as to why that's happened, but the sea urchin numbers have exploded and they're basically going through and eating all the algae off the rocks. And we're talking everything from the, the large macro algae and drift algae and so on, right down to the um, to the new spores that are trying to, to develop. Um, they're basically getting areas of basalt reef and boulders and they're sitting there and grazing on them and taking the 
the algae right out of the equation altogether. So at the moment, Parks Victoria are in concert with Deakin University and uh, the Blue Carbon Lab are involved in a project to go through and cull the sea urchins to try and bring back some semblance of balance to the, uh, to the system. So when you say those sea urchins are grazing on the algae, how important is that algae to the overall marine ecosystem? Oh, it's, it's absolutely crucial. So if we're looking at some of those examples I mentioned before, and this is where it, gets, it becomes a real paradox um, because we've got a, a particular kelp species, a brown kelp species that's a native that's basically functionally extinct at Point Cook. It's called uh, Eclonia radiata. Now, happily, we've got some good populations of it over at Jawbone Marine Sanctuary at Williamstown and some nice populations of it over the, over the across the other side of the bay at Bow. Morris at uh, Ricketts Point Marine Sanctuary where we see quite a lot of Eclonia. But for whatever reason, the Eclonia has basically vanished from Point Cook and we would suggest that it's mainly because of uh, overgrazing from the sea urchins. So the algae that grows there, the, what, what you'd call the macro algae, um, it's the large stuff like Eclonia, uh, like the introduced pests like Undaria and, and Gratilupia. Um, they're all what you call macro algae, um, you know, loosely called, you know, some might refer to them seaweeds and these sorts of things um, but they're so important from the point of view of providing things like uh, food obviously for the for the critters that munch on them and also shelter uh, for a lot of the animals that don't now I was only in the water at Point Cook um, just the other day and uh, it was clear um, on, on Saturday and it was clear to see like um, things like globefish and uh, flathead and the southern fiddler rays, they'll all get in there underneath the kelp and use it as shelter uh, even if they don't feed directly on it. So it's very important. Where I was saying there was a bit of a paradox before was that Undaria is one of these species that grows explosively in the colder months of the year. So we've got a situation at the moment at Point Cook where you've sort of got a choice between, uh, in some instances, some areas of the marine sanctuary, no algae at all because the urchins have gone through and bulldozed it off all the uh, all the boulders and, and overgrazed it, um, or you can have a choice of one algae species, which is namely the Undaria, which grows very... Uh, uh, very quickly. Um, in some instances, it's been tracked as growing as quickly. It's hard to imagine this, but five centimetres per day. Um, so this stuff can literally, you know, you talk about the adage of watching grass grow. I mean, this stuff is incredible. It, it is some of the fastest growing plant life on the planet, um, five centimetres a day. From what we've seen, it doesn't seem to grow as quickly in the, the local waters, being such a, a long way out of its natural range, but it does quite nicely, thank you very much. It grows really explosively from about March, April through until about October each year. And then once you hit about November and into the summer months, it uh, really starts to die back very quickly and it basically dies off. So it's only really a problem in, you know, maybe six to eight months of the year tops um, where you see good populations of it. And other than that, it just uh, it, it dies off and then the seed bank germinates, so to speak, and then you get the next wave, the next generation coming through uh, later on. This seems like a good spot to talk about some of those aquatic weeds. So we all recognise weeds in the garden and we know that some of those weeds are going to be bad for the environment and they're actually introduced. Can you please tell us a little bit about how big of a problem are those aquatic weeds and why are they spreading so much faster now than they have in the past? Yeah, great question there, Daniel. Um, 
basically what we tend to find with the aquatic weeds is they're uh, if they if they do get in, and I, I should back up the truck a little bit here and just uh, give a little bit of a history lesson on how these things get here in the first place. So it mainly comes from uh, hull fouling and um, and ballast water discharges. Now uh, that's when you get these big, say for example, a container ship or a car carrier or something coming in from uh, uh, from from Tokyo Bay and then transiting all the way down to Australia, and then you get all the undaria spores being released into the water, or a, a, a mature plant might fall off the hull. The regulations on that have been really uh, uh, stringently. Um, developed in the last little while and we're seeing some much stronger guidelines than they once were so that will hopefully reduce the impact of uh, you know introduced marine pest species like Undaria and Gratilupia getting here in the first place but once they do get here uh, everything that comes in is not necessarily going to be an invasive species it may not be able to survive for various reasons it may not get the required temperature it may not get the uh, favoured nutrient load and type uh, to, to prosper so a lot of them probably die out. But where Undaria and Gratilupia really get a, a leg up and a real advantage is, A, um, once they get here, they, they find something in the environment that's really favourable to them. But, B, probably one of the major things is what you'd call eutrophication or um, basically excessive nutrient discharge. Now, when you think about it, in northern Port Phillip Bay, being located where we are, I'm, I'm speaking to you, uh, uh, coming to you now from, uh, from Point Cook, in, in Melbourne's west, remember that we're not all that far away at all from the uh, from the Western Treatment Plant. Now they do a brilliant job in um, in they've got literally a world class facility out there where they treat all the, uh, the, the the waste. But there is still going to be a significant amount of nutrient going into the water, and we we see that um, it really hit me right between the eyes. I've been in Point Cook now for about the last fifteen years, but back in two thousand and eight, on the front page of the Age newspaper, they had two copies of the Melway. Um, uh, Melway maps of the area and the first one was hardly any development in Point Cook Road and that was about it in vacant paddocks. Nowadays the suburb has exploded to the point where the municipality became one of the most rapidly, uh, it actually held the title there for a while as the most rapidly growing municipality not just in Victoria but in the whole country, in, in Australia. So when you've got that urban sprawl developing to such an extent, what you'll find is you get this enormous um, this this huge uh, amount of potential nutrients going into the water. Now, Melbourne Water and uh, the other uh, local councils and these jurisdictions all over the place have put in these fantastic measures where they're using botanical filtration to get around that. So they're installing these man-made wetlands. But still, the sheer weight of numbers means that there's always going to be more nutrient discharge into the water. So it could be sewage to an extent. It could be dog feces. It could be, um, you know, runoff from uh, people, um, you know, water the gardens and all that sort of stuff. It all contributes in some way, shape or form. And all the nutrients, um, namely uh, things like your nitrogen and phosphorus and all that sort of stuff, end up getting into the water and that really ends up creating a, a lovely environment for the for the Undaria. They sit there and they gobble up these nutrients like they're fish and chips. And like I said, their, their growth is very rapid. They grow very, very quickly. And that's how they can exert a major, major impact on the, um, on, on the surrounding environment. So they 
they're basically getting there and outcompete things like a clonier and all the rest of it that, that might have been struggling in the first place. Probably the other thing I should point out there, Daniel, as well, is that we've got two different types of. Uh, it's handy to think of algae in two different ways. So you've got the microalgae on the one hand, which are these tiny, uh, minuscule cells that you can find under the uh, under a compound microscope. You know, you need to to get an ID on these things. You you need to zoom into about four hundred times magnification. Um, so they're really tiny little critters and they form these colonies and things. So you'll get things like uh, chlorella is a good example of a freshwater algae. Nanochloropsis is one that you find in the marine environment. Um, and then uh, thinking of the macroalgae. So on the one hand, the micro, on the other hand, the macros. And a good example of those is the, the ones I've been speaking about already, the Eclonia, the Undaria, and things like, you know, Davilia, um, the uh, the big bull kelp that you see. So algae comes in an enormous variety of different shapes and sizes. Um, it's it's really quite uh, uh, impressive, the diversity that's in that uh, that, that side of the, um, of uh, you know, that, that phylum, I guess you could say. The other one I'll point out is... Uh, where, where microalgae can have a huge impact is um, what you'd call the cyanobacteria. That's the correct name for it, more colloquially known as blue-green algae. And you get things like uh, anabina and uh, microcystis. These things caused this monstrous bloom in the Murray-Darling River in 1991 and again more recently where there was like a 1,000K section of the river that turned into basically pea soup. And there was a whole range of different factors that were driving that. Um, but uh, probably the major one there, what you, what you call the limiting nutrient in the freshwater environment is phosphorus if you're looking at... And, and the phosphates, superphosphates, which are used in farming and all that, that sort of thing. Uh, if you look at the marine environment, it tends more to be nitrogen. Um, but the cyanobacteria, um, they're, they're very good examples of what you call nitrogen fixers. So they're great at grabbing the nitrogen, but not so good at grabbing the phosphorus. So they really need that to come in from somewhere else. And, uh, you know, the farming community is obliged and there was all this uh, a perfect storm of situations where there was long day length, hot uh, um, sun, uh, hot temperatures, which was favourable for the algae's uh, photosynthesis. Um, and so they they were getting these huge blooms. And then, of course, you add the superphosphates to the picture and the uh, the amount of algae in the system absolutely exploded. And when that happens, the big problem with blue-greens is they can overrun a, um, a riverine environment. If the, slow, if the flows are very, very stagnant and slow or non-existent, they'll basically form a carpet on the surface and they'll choke oxygen out of the rest of the system. And particularly during the nighttime hours when the photosynthesis shuts off um, and they, they can cause clogging of waterways and all this sort of stuff. But the really nasty part about blue-green algae is that they have um, what you call hepatotoxins, which target the liver, and, of course, neurotoxins, which target the central nervous system. So they are potentially very, very nasty um, critters to have in an environment where they, they form a monstrous bloom-type situation. So they're not only destructive to the environment, they're also destructive to human bodies as well. Oh, absolutely. If you get a situation where um, you've got uh, a blue-green algae bloom in a reservoir, um, you, you'll hear this from time to time where they uh, they have to stop taking water from the reservoir and, the unfortunately, the inhabitants of the country town have to suddenly start hitting the bottled water and they bring in emergency shipments of bottled water and all that sort of thing to enable the communities to get by. Um, and it's I should point out too, it's not only the, the liver and central nervous system damage. If you go water skiing in an environment with a blue-green blue, 
bloom and you get this stuff on your skin, it has been shown to uh, cause dermatitis to develop too. And you can get some very nasty skin irritations and rashes and all that sort of thing. Um, so it's it's not the sort of stuff that you want to mess with. It's very, very potent. Um, of course, the problem as well can arise if cattle uh, go to a water source that's contaminated. And uh, right at the time of, um, of, of this show, Daniel, we um, unfortunately uh, a lot of uh, – linked to the Sylvan Reservoir. It wasn't a blue-green bloom, but they had a situation where a whole heap of untreated water infiltrated the towns, uh, a, a whole range of towns from, you know, Whittlesea and Epping right across uh, to Murrulbark. A big swathe of the community was affected by having potentially unsafe water. So what they could do was they could boil the water. It was a precautionary thing, boil the kettle, let the water cool, and then you can use it for drinking. Uh, unfortunately, you can't do the same thing with blue-green algae toxins because they're very, very stable. They've got this um, um, what, what's called a monocyclic structure, uh, the, the chemical structure of these things. You can boil it as much as you want and you'll still have a situation where you're getting a um, – you, 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 got those toxins that are unfortunately still present in the water and they still pack a punch. So that's a, that's a really worrisome element of, uh, of blue-green blooms. That's not good at all, is it? So, no, no um, not. <laughs> not good at all. So you mentioned that algae and blue-green algae are actually not really the same thing. You mentioned that blue-green algae is actually a type of a bacteria. Now, we tend to lump all of those things in together, sort of, you know, plants, algae, um, blue-green algae as aquatic flora, but are algae and blue-green algae technically plants? They, uh, well, yeah, they belong to the, uh, to the, they're from that phylum, but it's, it's probably more um, beneficial to talk about uh, them in each sort of, I, I guess, uh, down to each, you know, consider each species that you're, that you're discussing. And uh, when you talk about the things like, for well, the, the, the cyanobacteria, as the name suggests, they're actually members of the kingdom Monera, I believe, so the bacterial side of things. Uh, but when we look at things like, for example, uh, like you cannot get more different um, responses, even though they're, they're, they're quite similar. There, there might be things that are quite similarly related. So, for example, if we're looking at a blue-green algae, like I said, it can cause dermatitis and things. If we're looking at a green algae, um, things like Chlorella vulgaris is the freshwater example, you'll actually find that in a lot of um, moisturisers these days. There are particular lines of moisturisers that use an extract of Chlorella vulgaris uh, because it's beneficial to help moisturise and replenish your skin. So, there, uh, there's an example where you you know if you lump in algae all under the one basket um it's it's very limited uh utility it's it's very limited use um when you consider the different effects they can have they're absolute chalk and cheese you know moisturizer on one hand dermatitis and irritation on the other i mean you, you cannot get much more different I'd like to change the subject a little bit now and speak about some of those wetland environments. I'm personally very fascinated by mangroves. Can you please tell us a little bit more about those mangrove environments? Oh yeah, well the mangroves are a, a they're a beauty. They're a real uh, they are renowned as one of the most uh, diverse habitats that you'll find on the um, on the on the planet. Like in terms of the uh, the importance that they have to marine and estuarine ecosystems is is quite incredible. So they are we we know for a fact that they are extremely valuable as far as um, being nurseries for uh, for fish. So you find the juvenile fish or fingerlings as you might call them in the 
waters in those areas, um, that, that is such a crucial habitat for those. So if we're looking at the local example, um, the grey or white mangroves, the uh, Avicennia mariner is the uh, the species that we've got here in Victoria, or one of the more common ones. And uh, you'll find that, for example, if you want to check out some mangroves, uh, obviously you've got to be mindful of the fact that they're very delicate, so you don't want to go stomping around in them, but just look from afar. Uh, probably some of the best areas include Jawbone uh, Marine Sanctuary at Williamstown. There's a nice little pocket of mangroves there. We've got a nice uh, section of mangroves in the Stony Creek backwash under the Westgate Bridge there. That's a great location to go and have a squeeze at, um, go and see the mangroves there. And also um, the Barwon Estuary has some lush populations of mangroves. And the mangroves, uh, one of the really interesting things about them is their um, the, the root system. So you've got things like the uh, what they call pneumatophores, which are basically almost these snorkel-type breeding tubes that project up above the surface. And that's when you can really tell you've found mangroves is when you've got the, the traditional almost like a, a tree growing out of the mud. And then you'll see all these little finger-like projections coming out of the water where they can uh, enables those those roots to become specialised so as they can actually um, breed the uh, the air, so to speak, which they, uh, they, they utilise as part of their physiology. Right. And it's very important not to walk on those snorkels as well because that can actually do damage to the plant. Is that right? Absolutely right. Yeah, that's one of the things. That's one of the, uh, I, I guess, the consequences of uh, when you when you're carrying out some sort of marine biology based research or marine ecology based research, you do have to be very mindful of the fact that you just can't just go stomping around um, on the uh, on the substrate. Uh, because trampling has been shown to have a very detrimental impact on uh, a lot of these environments. So the same sort of thing would would. Uh you know, if I'm going out to Point Cook like I did on Saturday, for example, going for a snorkel, I'll be very careful walking uh, off to one side of the seagrass beds because of the seagrass where it lives. If I'm stomping around on it in my, um, uh, you know, uh, in my booties, I know for a fact it's going to damage those environments and all the critters that live within it. So you try and go around more where there's the sandy bottom. Same deal applies for mangroves. You don't want to go stomping around on all those new metaphors and crushing them up because you will absolutely cause uh, harm to the plant to occur. Yeah, that's actually very important to think about because these environments really are so important just to everything. As it certainly are, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how some of those marine and terrestrial creatures interact with those mangroves? Yeah, well, um, a, a good example if we're if we're looking at the mangroves here in um, here in Victoria, um, it's you're going to find, like I mentioned before, a lot of the things like flathead and all that sort of stuff in the uh, living in amongst the sediments. You'll find pebble crabs. You'll find uh, you know these um, what you call the gastropods or the little snails and things doing the round, uh, doing the rounds. Uh, incredible numbers of those that really love the, uh, the the shelter and the food that the mangrove areas um, help to provide. It's, a, like I said before, a very diverse habitat, really rich ecology. And, um, you know, we've, we've seen some examples, unfortunately, overseas, um, and, and nowadays the awareness is getting so much better. When we look at things like um, areas of the world, like, for example, Thailand and Ecuador, um, thriving shrimp aquaculture industries. So, unfortunately, what they used to do once upon a time was decide, right, here's 
is a nice coastal area. We're going to do, uh, we're going to pop a shrimp farm in this area here. But then to achieve that, they'd actually go in and they would physically uh, destroy, they'd rip out the mangroves to enable them to get started in the first place. So they were basically taking a high-powered rifle and shooting themselves in the foot because, of course, what it meant is you had um, this uh, situation where one of the one of the, 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 the crucibles, one of the, the incubators for life itself in those coastal areas was being completely crucified and just being annihilated. So uh, that is a, a that is the sort of thing that doesn't happen much these days because people have uh, opened their eyes to it and realised, hang on, these are these are really valuable environments. We can't have a situation where we, you know, for the for the sake of aquaculture and the, the, the no doubt the money and the socioeconomic benefits that come from that, uh, we can't forsake the natural environment as well. So they're they're coming up with systems where you can go through and integrate the two. Um, so that's uh, that's that's an example of. Uh, you know what not to do. I guess closer to home in terms of how, how they uh, interact. You know, if you look up north, the mangroves in uh, around Cairns and things, um, you're going to find uh, totally different environments. You might find crocodiles on the outskirts of the mangroves or within the mangrove forests themselves. You'll find uh, you know box jellyfish and all these sorts of things doing the rounds as well. So of course it varies depending on uh, where you are in the world and where the mangroves are as to what's actually going to be in there. But uh, yeah, can't underestimate them. I mean. Uh, just such incredibly rich environments and uh, things like, um, yeah, like I mentioned before, the habitat destruction um, to make way for new developments is one thing. Uh, of course, those sorts of areas are very, very susceptible to things like oil spills. Um, you know, uh, you, you don't want to have a situation where a, a tanker runs aground or something and then you get all of the oil coming uh, coming ashore. I think uh, when we look at the mangrove environments around Louisiana, some of those were in the United States, some of those were hit very, very hard during, um, you know, the Deepwater Horizon oil well blowout that happened a few years back. So, uh, you know, they're, they're very delicate environments. You can't emphasise that enough. Uh, very delicate, very diverse, and, uh, you know, we, we have got to do everything in our power to protect them and make sure that they're there for, uh, for future generations to have a look at and enjoy as well. It's absolutely so important, and I really couldn't agree with you anymore. So you're president of the Marine Care Point Cook. Can you tell us a little bit about what's involved with your work over there? Yeah, well, uh, Marine Care Point Cook was uh, a group that was started up around, or I think it was around 2009 from memory, uh, by the, uh, the the previous president, Jacqueline Flynn, who did a fantastic job of assembling the group. So all it is is basically a friends group. It's a, it's a bunch of like-minded people getting together for certain events. And to give you an idea of some of the events that we participate in, the Great Victorian Fish Count is one that we do uh, every year uh, in association with uh, Parks Victoria, who we've got a terrific relationship with a lot of the uh, the staff at Parks Vic, we have a lot to do with over the over the journey. Um, also, things like the sea slug census is one that was uh, running quite uh, or was due to run very recently until COVID nineteen intervened, uh, so we couldn't get in the water for uh, for that. But um, yeah, so these sorts of events that come along. Also, we did uh, we did secure a grant a little while ago from the Communities of Nature, um, which was uh, auspiced by Parks Victoria. Um, Four and a half thousand dollars went towards investigating the uh, efficacy, the efficiency, in other words, of removing Undaria pinnatifida from the uh, from the Point Cook Marine Sanctuary. So that was um, that was a really interesting project because what it what it demonstrated to us was that um, when you do go and rip Undaria out of the marine environment, uh, unfortunately, it does. Uh, yes, it's a pest species, but when you do that, it, invariably you will cause some collateral damage. So we were seeing situations. 
where unfortunately things like, um, to give you examples, weed fish, uh, little 11 armed sea stars and brittle stars and all these sorts of things, the sea stars were getting dragged out of the water uh, through no, no fault of their own. And quite often, uh, you know, you'd see uh, significant mortalities amongst those sorts of things. So we're at the point where we're looking at it saying, well, gee whiz, is this really the way to go? Um, and nowadays, I think uh, there's acknowledgement that this stuff is definitely a very recognised um, and recognisable marine pest species, but whether it actually does more harm than good to rip it out uh, then becomes the, uh, the, the key issue. Um, and some of uh, authors have actually referred to it as being relatively ecologically benign. Now, that is never a tag that you can assign to something like the Northern Pacific Sea Star, which is just this ravenous little predator that goes around and munches on everything in its path or loves eating all the bivalves, um, bivalve mollusks that you find in the water. Um, things like the pippies and the mussels and all that sort of stuff, they have an absolute field day. But Undaria being, a, being an aquatic species, a, a, an aquatic plant species basically, a macrophyte, it doesn't tend to have the same punch. So some have said, well, if you don't like Undaria, don't worry too much because it's only going to be there for six months of the year and then it'll, then it'll nick off. And um, then it'll uh, you know, eventually grow back again, yes, but then it'll disappear again. So the... the, the uh, Marine eco- uh, the marine ecological community is constantly in a bit of a, a state of flux with regards to Undaria. And like I said, I've seen, I've seen um, you know, various fish species, the southern fiddler rays that we've got good populations of at Point Cook, um, cuttlefish, uh, everything using it as, as, uh, as shelter and, and camouflaging in there with it. So it's one of those vexed questions where, yes, it's a marine pest and where we know it's technically the bad guy, but uh, gee whiz, there's a bit of an upshot to it as well. Um, it's, it's not necessarily the, uh, the root of all evil from, from where we're concerned. So, yeah, that's the sort of thing um, we do at Marine Care Point Cook. So if anyone's interested, best thing to do is just to check us out on the uh, the website. I should point out that when you spell Marine Care Point Cook, uh, on the end of uh, Cook, um, there is an E. So that's uh, technically the correct spelling of the area. So it's a bit confusing because Point Cook Marine Sanctuary, the Cook has an E on the end. Marine Care Point Cook has an E on the end. The suburb, Point Cook, does not have an E on the end. So it's just uh, C-O-O-K. Um, whereas, uh, yeah, if we're looking at uh, Point Cook Marine Sanctuary, it's C-O-O-K-E. So, uh, yeah, that's one to, to just remember when you're, you're looking for us on uh, Facebook. So you're so passionate about marine ecology, and that's just so evident when you speak. What was it that inspired you to enter this field? And do you have any advice for young up-and-comers who want to enter the field of marine ecology? Yeah, good question. Look, I think um, I have to be honest and say that my uh, my first sort of foray into the idea of marine biology and things was when I was only a young fella. I would have been about probably seven years old or something, and mum and dad let me watch a few minutes of the movie Jaws. And um, from that moment on, I'd, and I still to this day maintain that real fascination with sharks. I think they're uh, some of the most incredible animals on the planet and um, just uh, inc- amazing to see them in their natural environment. So that was one of those things that really grabbed me. And uh, from that moment on, I, um, I really started looking at uh, the marine environment. I didn't live particularly close to the beach, though so we'd go up to, uh, to Queensland and visit my grandmother up there uh, every once in a while up on the Gold Coast at uh, Palm Beach. And uh, being in the marine environment, getting into the water and going for swims every day was something that really started 
stay with me forever. I've got to say it now. Um, you know, it's sort of gone full circle where I did a, a degree at um, Deakin University at Warrnambool, a Bachelor of uh, Aquatic Science, and um, yeah, basically haven't looked back. So, so as far as advice goes to uh, to the new up and comers, um, my my advice there would be that uh, when when you're looking at things like marine biology and marine ecology, there are only a certain number of jobs going in those sorts of industries. Um, so uh, it is a very, very competitive field. So one area, though, where you can really have an impact and, and get into industry and get jobs is in the field of aquaculture. Um, and that's where I'm involved in um, teaching at the uh, Bachelor in, in into the Bachelor of Agriculture and Technology degree, which is offered by Melbourne Polytechnic. Um, and we run that from our Epping campus. So with uh, the, the beauty of aquaculture is it's an industry that's growing very rapidly and now in Victoria we're finally hitting a sort of a, a critical mass where we've got uh, enterprises like um, mainstream aquaculture in Werribee that culture uh, about 1,200 tonnes of barramundi a year, uh, taking water out of a geothermal bore to keep that uh, tropical fish species happy. Um, we've got abalone farms and there's blue mussel aquaculture and all that sort of thing. So getting into a field like that is a good one because, of course, it means we'll either there's jobs in a growing industry, but B, you're going to be using a lot of the skills that you would have learned from your uh, days studying marine biology or marine ecology. Now, that's whether you do a, uh, whether it's a, you know, a degree or whether it ends up being a diploma or a certificate three or four or whatever in a related field like the natural resource management and all those sort of things that might have an aquatic bent uh, to them. Um, so getting those, uh, getting that skill set is a, is a really good thing because you put a lot of that into, into, um, into practice when you're working at an aquaculture enterprise. And, of course, nowadays when we look at aquaculture, some people consider it a little bit of a swear word because they consider that it's damaging to the environment. And my, uh, my response to that is, well, yeah, I mean, just about everything that you care to mention, any industry will have an impact on the environment in some way, shape or form. It can be quite negative. But increasingly there's a focus on, okay, but how do we make it less and less negative and um, get ourselves to a situation where it's relatively uh, environmentally sustainable and, uh, environmentally friendly so that's the big challenge going forward you know in a lot of instances and we're seeing a lot of technologies coming through now that are starting to shape that uh, the one i mentioned before mainstream aquaculture is a great example because that's a recirculating aquaculture system they've got the ability to treat every single drop of water that leaves that facility a really interesting area that you might be interested in there daniel is um the what what you call imtas i-m-t-a's or integrated multi-trophic aquaculture so that's a that's recognition of the fact that you can have, okay, a sea cage that might be uh, farming Atlantic salmon like they do in Tassie at the moment. Um, in Tasmania, it's the, it's the single most lucrative industry in the entire country is our uh, the, the sheer amount of Atlantic salmon that are produced. And people have rightly turned around and said, well, that's damaging to the environment if you've got a sea cage. But now what they're doing is uh, looking to set up systems where you've got kelp growing in proximity to the sea cage environment and you've also got mussels and those sorts of things that are taking out a lot of the waste that the fish are producing. And uh, not only is it environmentally friendly, but then you're selling Atlantic salmon, you're selling mussels, and you might be selling the kelp as well. So instead of just one product, you've now got your eggs spread over three different baskets. So it's uh, that's a real watch this space one. That's a, a really interesting area where we can certainly limit some of the environmental damage that, we're, uh, that we might be causing. And of course, the, the other thing to remember is that, you know, a lot of these things, when we're talking about 
about environmental, um, you know, sustainability, or we're talking about production processes or animal ethics. These things aren't mutually exclusive. Quite often, you will find what I like to call a sort of a shotgun solution, where you you, you look to satisfy, you know, killing more uh, multiple birds with the one stone. You can satisfy your production goals. You can satisfy your um, your uh, you know the economics behind it and the environmental sustainability and adhere to your animal ethics by adopting a particular course of action. And that's where the uh, the integrated multi-tropic aquaculture is going to be a really interesting one to keep an eye on in the future. Fantastic. That is so exciting. And it reminds me of a lot of the sort of permaculture ideals that are, um, a lot of gardeners have where they don't, you know, if you have bare soil, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Whereas if you just let the weeds that pop up grow on it, that, that soil, so it sort of like stabilizes in a way. And, and that sort of sounds similar to what you're saying about IMTA. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Yeah, you're using some of these things to, uh, to to alleviate some of that environmental damage. It is, a, like you say there, Daniel, with the permaculture side of things, it is, uh, it's, it's a very different way of thinking about it. And that's where we've got to be honest and look at things where we've had farming systems in the future that are, uh, like you say, they might be causing degradation of, uh, of, of the marine environment. They might be causing very, very poor quality soils to only get worse. Um, and it's, it's a different way of looking at things to try and uh, utilise what we've got in the in the best way possible andrew that is so inspiring thank you for coming on the show i hope our listeners have learned a lot about marine ecology and the importance of those aquatic ecosystems to the overall environment that's an absolute pleasure daniel you can find more information on the marine care point cook facebook page which i'll have a link to in the show notes you'll also see other links in the show notes including to our website where you'll find heaps of information on plants Connect with us on Twitter at PlantsGrowHere and on our Facebook group, which will also be in the show notes.